welcome to We Are Made of Stories. We are covering chapters 13 through 16 from Evicted. I'm Kyle Quazeda. I'm Sarah Stromsky. And I'm Kyle O'Connor. Starting with chapter 13, Lorraine moves into Beaker's trailer after being evicted. Um, we follow Roger from the Department of Neighborhood Services as he does a property inspection without ever setting foot inside of any of the trailers. And then also we see Beak management come in and fire Lenny and Susie. Chapter 14, High Tolerance, starts off with Scott saying he's fighting or doesn't want to fight his eviction and he wants to leave. Um, he gets in contact with Narcotics Anonymous, run by Pedo, and they kind of do some work together, leading to the description of the tenants, the tenants strike and how tenants refer to themselves as their own class. Um, going along with that, the environment of... Uh, the trailer park and everyone's relationships with each other and how it's a helpful judgmental relationship um, that leading also into the relationship of the renters and the landlords and uh, what they expect out of them and then back to the storyline of Scott Scott calling his mom and not thinking she can help so he tries to go get help from a rehab center only to be told there are not enough spots and goes back on drugs, not receiving the help he is requesting. And looking at chapters 15 and 16, starting with chapter 15, we come across Arlene and Crystal, and in their apartment they hear above them Trisha being beaten by her boyfriend Chris on the floor above. Arlene chooses to ignore this by covering her ears, while Crystal partially blames Trisha for not leaving Chris, in which she eventually tries to call Sharina, and when she is unable to, she calls 911. So 911 shows up on Sharina's property, threatens Sharina for the repeated nuisance calls that she will either be imprisoned or she will receive huge fines if, if this keeps happening. She's essentially forced to provide an eviction notice for Trisha and Arlene and Arlene tries to convince Sharina that it was Crystal who keeps calling the cops uh, with the excessive calls. Towards the end of this chapter, Arlene is offered an apartment, but it is too much at $600 a month. And so some of the themes that we're focusing on in chapter 15 is how many are apprehensive in reporting crimes due to housing instability as something we have discussed in lectures throughout class and how many of these tenants will fall into a cycle of just suffering and paying attention to their own well-being rather than developing a community. And Arlene and Crystal also have a compli complicated relationship. This is not a black and white scenario. This is very gray, and it's an example of how these issues are very complicated. And as Latricia talked about in lecture before when she was guest speaking, uh, usually these problems don't have a solution. You just create new problems or make things a little better or worse depending on what is being implemented. So it causes rifts and obstacles throughout. Moving on to chapter 16, the main idea to take away from here is that Sharina's income largely increases in February because of the February tax credits. So many are able to just fight off eviction notices then. And Lamar is a character here that is unable to do so, to clear his debts. So she, Sharina, uh, ignores many of the requests from Lamar to fix issues on the apartment. One of the things that also happens in chapter 16, the biggest event yet, 
is Sharina is called while at the casino about a fire in Kamala's apartment. Kamala's baby, eight month old, has died in the fire and Kamala herself is burned. Sharina is only focused on her well-being financially and once she is cleared on that, uh, she uses this as an excuse to keep the money at, for the rent as well as evict uh, Lamar. So the main theme here is how gambling uh, and greed is overweighing Sharina's humanity and she is unconcerned with other lives uh, such as her tenants. And we'll be moving on to the Twitter questions. The first one starts with Kyler. Um, so a lot of these questions are good. One we want to answer is why doesn't Sharina help Kamala out with the fire problem and maybe help pay for some of it since it's her property and her tenant. Knowing that Kamala may be struggling with money and three kids, this could be a very nice thing to do to help out a single mother. And to hit on that off the bat, we're getting the sense that Sharina is selfish, very greedy, um, and she's more about her profit than anything else at this point. After talking to the fire inspector, she knows that she doesn't have to return the rent. Well, first off, she knows that the fire is not her responsibility, so that relieves a lot off her, knowing she won't face any legal charges or anything. Um, going on to asking, do I have to return my rent to them since it was the first of the month and the fire inspectors told her no. So she gets into her greedy mode immediately and says, good, I'm going to keep that money. I'm not going to return the rent. Um, I have a large amount of cash from it. I can buy new property. I can reinvest in this one. Kind of going along with that stuff. Um, and then it kind of transferred to the the what I saw was the image that Sharina and Tobin both give off. Sharina has two sides to her where it's people in the same class as her or a higher class uh, financially um, or socially. She's very respectful to them. She's always saying I'm helping out my tenants. I'm always I'm a good landlord. I want to do what's best for them. Um, but then when it comes to her tenants directly she tries to be intimidating she uh is not scared to give out eviction notices she doesn't appreciate the work that they do if they help out um so she's very two-faced and then when you go to tobin tobin has one face it's stern um it, it seems rude and not polite any of the time but with that being said you kind of know what you're getting yourself into and uh he even though he is very impolite and um, isn't scared to get about eviction notices either, he's still willing to help out his tenants, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I would actually pretty much agree with most of what you said. Um, the biggest thing being the primary reason on why she's not helping her tenants out is her greed is outweighing her, uh, her humanity specifically. Um, and that's represented in her visit to the casino in order to gamble, and she's very careless with her wealth. Um, I'm thinking about that, and Sharina does a lot of stuff to look good, so bringing groceries to her tenant on the first day moving there, or like extending a couple days, like I feel like she's kind of stringing them along, like giving them just a little bit so that they stay renting with her, because they're like, oh, she's nice every once in a while. Um, and then with Tobin, before Beak Management comes in, he has Lenny and Susie who are like his in-betweens. And I think at one point in the book they call them like cultural brokers. They're more of the 
they deal with the tenants more directly and they're able to give them extensions based on a more personal relationship. And then going in between Tobin, they're like, okay, this is what we worked out and we're able to talk to them. Or if Tobin needs something, like Lenny's gonna get it for him. Um, one of my questions was for, with the turnover of Beak Management, how all of the verbal agreements were honored um, and how they kept their documentation for that. I actually looked up what a landlord is responsible to do when they sell a property. Um, in this case, Tobin still has his ownership in that, but with the new management, there's no way for them to prove these verbal agreements unless Lenny and Susie step in and they have some way to document it. And I feel like a lot of the tenants are gonna be scared to step up and say like, well, this is what we verbally agreed when on documentation it shows they're consistently behind on rent because that doesn't look good for them. So I think they'd rather just be evicted or move out than try to fight it because they also might not know their rights. Um, but as far as the law goes, and it varies from state to state, the landlord has to give them like a month notice before moving out, they, even if they have a contract, um, and they can't just kick them, up, kick them out on the spot. But with all these people having issues with their finances, and not wanting to stand up or go to court, they'd probably move out sooner if they didn't know. I also found that section interesting um, because when you find out that the big management comes in, um, the uh, tenant comes in and asks what's going on and then has this worried face and goes out and spreads the news and then the atmosphere of the trailer park, they're all scared. So it's kind of... Mm -hmm it kind of shows the relationship that Tobin had with his tenants. I mean, he was obviously a stern guy. It was like, you need to owe me on this rent. You need to pay this much and held him to it or said, or wasn't going to pay someone or help him out. Um, but you kind of see the relationship and how lenient Tobin was with his tenants. And they actually liked that. And that's why they kept coming back is because they knew that they kind of had that to their advantage. So, um, I think Tobin was actually helping them out, even though it doesn't seem like it. He really was. And then the moment that he leaves is and this other management comes in, they're kind of scared knowing like, okay, we actually have to deal with all this now. Mm -hmm. And these people don't know the culture of the trailer park either. Right. Like they don't have that relationship and they don't know how things run and what people expect from the management. And that's actually a perfect question to kind of lead us into the next one which will be our final Twitter question for this podcast. And that is, how is a rent strike beneficial? Does this do any good for the tenants? And I would tie this into that question previously asked, and I would say it would not be beneficial because of the housing instability. These tenants do not have any power. This has been something that has been discussed in the organize readings, um, as well as discussions throughout our lecture multiple times, and that these people need the help and influence of those that are privileged both socially as well as financially in order to have some kind of cultural value enough to make legal changes. Without this kind of a push, we're not going to see any kind of change in these situations for these tenants. It's discussed in chapter 14 specifically when they say it cannot simply come from those who are suffering in these properties. There has to be a surge of these wealthy, privileged people standing beside them in order to make these changes. So if they do strike, you know, the rent, then 
they're just going to be replaced most likely by people who are homeless or who are in even a worse situation than the uh, people who are on a strike. So it just goes to a cyclical um, you know, a cycle, I guess, where people are just stuck in this never-ending scenario. Going along with that the, um, point about power, you know, identity and power, we always say it intertwines. We just wrote a paper about it. Um, and chapter 14, when it's talking about these strikes and um, them coming together, it says uh, they didn't want to identify with the oppressed, meaning that they're scared to um, admit that they're financially in a slump or they just don't want to or kind of like that so if you can't identify yourself in that situation that you are struggling with housing and income and um, you're just kind of pushing it to the side you can't come together because you're not recognizing the problem and uh, that just that it's not gonna you can't really gain anything from making a um, tenant strike if you first off can't realize that you are being treated unfairly you're economically struggling um, but if you can't do it and others can't do it then you really have no strike you don't have a community coming together you don't have a group coming together to stand up for your needs and wants so again like it's it's just not existent yeah I think there's a really big issue with the sense of community um, who is the one woman who needed to borrow a shower uh, Lorraine. Lorraine. They saw her and they knew she needed help and they're like, we'll help her, but it's also her fault and that, like, really bummer for her. So, like, there's no collaboration between mm -hmm. them. They're kind of like... There's an absence of a community. Yeah, there's just, there's none and they're not working for it either because a lot of them just think, like, this is just a temporary situation. I don't want to set down roots and I'm not going to bring anything to this community because it's not giving me anything. That's funny how they, like, they help each other out. But and not then, really. But not like, like I'll help you out, but you know this is your fault. I'm judging you on this, so it's like right because they got so, yeah. It's like so where's the lives. where's the morality in that? It's right. like I mean that's nice, but then again it's it's kind of it makes you almost scared to ask for help, right. knowing so, you'll get it, but knowing you'll get backlash from it, which is very interesting with that uh, community. So a lot of the overarching themes that we saw between all these chapters was this idea of greed with the landowners. It's a little different between Sharina and Tobin, but it exists with both of them. And then also the sense of community with the tenants. So the people who are living in the trailer park, as well as with like Sharina and Crystal, they have this relationship, but they're not really working for each other. Um, we're very interested in following their stories as it progresses. Where will Arlene move? Will Scott get better? And what's going to happen with the trailer park? You just listened to We Are Made of Stories, a podcast created and produced by GBSU students. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, please email us at W-A-M-O-S-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thank you.